Good afternoon. Welcome to Bible Quest, the Tuesday edition. Uh, today we've got Dan Bunting with us. How are you, Dan? I'm doing well. Thanks. Good to see you. Justin Dobbs, how are you, Justin? Doing well, thank God. Good. And Scott Smelser, how are you, Scott? Much better this week. Good. Glad, glad you're feeling better. Uh, so this week, uh, I think we're going back into the Gospel of Mark. We've uh, been away from the Gospel for a little while, and we, we're going to periodically keep working through this. So we're in Mark chapter 8, um, and right in the middle of a section that really goes really well together and will help to explain this story that we're going to start with. So I don't know, but I guess the best way to start will just be reading this story, and then we can maybe look at what happened beforehand, just quickly kind of summarize that and then talk about the story. So we're in Mark 8, verse 22. Um, do one of you guys want to read that story there? Yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I can take it. Go ahead, yeah. Oh, all right, I'll do it. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him out to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. So another interesting healing uh, time with Jesus uh, in a relatively short amount of time at the end of chapter 7. There's an interesting episode where he heals the deaf man, um, and he does kind of in a unique, special way. Uh, this is also a pretty unique miracle uh what makes this miracle unique or kind of strange or different well there is spitting which is always a curious miracle technique yeah, yeah. so that's <laughs> that's kind of interesting the process that jesus uses is is strange kind of different it also doesn't seem to take the first time like it's uh an, an inefficient miracle yeah it's like it it doesn't work <laughs> and he has to do it again um so, so it's kind of weird, like, like what's going on with this story? Did Jesus mess up or, you know, what, what can we learn from this episode? Well, there's very little in this paragraph to, to tell us anything, right? The uh, Jesus doesn't give us any words of oops or sorry about that or uh, do you want me to make the miracle any better? He doesn't even ask him when, you know, when he asks the man, can you see anything? And the man lets him know that he cannot see very well uh jesus doesn't you know he he, he there's still no response to uh, to more jesus seems to be doing things with with design because there's no indication that he's um reacting to failure mm -hmm. yeah and so maybe if we consider what happened just previous to this uh, Jesus is with his disciples in the boat, and this is after he's fed the 5,000, fed the 4,000, and he tells them in the boat to watch out in verse 15 of Mark 8, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, and his disciples are confused, they're trying to figure out, you know, did anybody bring you bread, why is Jesus asking us about bread, what's going on here, they're very, they don't get the point of what Jesus is trying to show them and teach them. Um, and they haven't really understood exactly who Jesus is. And that comes, uh, I think, very clearly in verse 20, um, or actually in verse 19, when Jesus challenges them and says, uh, whenever the 5,000 were fed, how many baskets did you take up afterwards? And there was the five loaves and the two fish. And they said, we had 12 baskets. And then he says, and whenever I did it with the seven, 
uh, for the 4,000, how many baskets did you bring up? And they said, with that we had seven baskets left over. And Jesus really challenges them, kind of rebukes them in verse 21 and says, do you not yet still understand? Um, and we finished our, our episode last time in Mark chapter 8 talking about that. What, what is Jesus saying that they don't understand? Something about who Jesus is. Uh, yeah. I think they understood that Jesus fed people miraculously. I think they got that. And we might look at that and say, well, what else is there to get? Well, Jesus can do miracles. Pretty awesome. Uh, but there's a conclusion that Jesus wants to for them to draw from that, and they haven't seemed to arrive at that conclusion. They don't know who Jesus is. And that's where this whole chapter is driving. It's going to be to this confession of the reality of Jesus' identity. Yeah, and I think that sets up really well for this story with the blind man. The, the apostles had kind of an image of Jesus. They, they understood some about Jesus, maybe saw him kind of similar to how this blind man saw people walking around like trees, but not very clearly. Um, but it wasn't until Jesus opened his eyes fully that he was able to clearly see. And it's the same kind of process that people come to in knowing who Jesus is. Um, you can have a, a dim picture um, and think that you have a clear image of Jesus. But unless you really sit down and listen at the feet of Jesus, who Jesus really is, you're not going to clearly understand uh, or be able to clearly see coming to his feet. Um, so it looks like Mark kind of purposely puts the story in here. Uh, it's not recorded in this way in any of the other gospels, um, puts it in here to kind of make that point, really elaborate on this idea, like what Justin was saying, driving us towards uh, a clearer view of who Jesus really is. Uh, go ahead, Dan. And in the story before the, uh, the, the, where they're in the boat talking about the bread, um, is even farther down the path of, of faithlessness. That's when the Pharisees are asking for signs. Jesus won't do a miracle for them because the miracle will not be a sign toward him. They, they won't see it that way. They'll find some way to be upset. So the Pharisees are kind of like at level zero. There, there's no faith. There's just this desire to, to attack or to scoff. And the apostles are doing way better than them. I mean, they're following Jesus. They believe what Jesus says. And even so, Jesus, in that middle story of them in the boat talking about the bread, he's saying, uh, it's almost like um, with the desire, you need to see more. You need to always see better. You need to keep seeking to see more clearly. Um, some of that is to say, don't think that you're just better than other people. Uh, that's not how we rank ourselves or consider ourselves. We always need to be desiring to see more clearly. And uh, the blind man is, it's almost like he goes through those steps when he's blind, physically blind. It's like he's the Pharisee, doesn't see, doesn't, I think the blind man wants to see, but he can't see. And if, if, if somebody today invented glasses that would kind of plug into your brain so that the, the camera in your glasses could see things and it would plug into your brain so that you could see, but you could only see in black and white. People wouldn't go, oh, no, I don't want that. Um, I think it would be worthwhile. So even being able to see partially is a pretty good blessing. But if you have Jesus there and Jesus only gives you black and white, I mean, you might want to be respectful to him, but but you know what Jesus can do. Why wouldn't you say, thank you, Jesus? Um, how about a little bit more of of your glory and your honor at, at, at to lift to lift me up even higher, not for his own praise and glory, but 
if Jesus is there uh, uh, and you know you can get color vision, why not ask for more? And so the blind man gets to this middle point that's symbolically, in my mind, similar, similar to what the apostles were at. And he's given uh, the greater sight. And I think that that's what that miracle is directing the apostles and us to do. Uh, anything else you if I may, Go ahead. yeah, just just if I may, uh, I, I like like the way you happen to visualize that, Dan. Uh, maybe maybe one step further here. Jesus Jesus doesn't seem to be satisfied with a partial sight. Uh, we might say that's pretty good, uh, and we know Jesus can do more, but I mean we're pretty satisfied. Jesus is not. Uh, he wants us to see clearly, uh, and I, I think that should challenge us. Um, the way the way this whole interaction works is he needs a second touch from Jesus, and so you know, we need to keep coming back again and again. But I think probably the reality is we don't see clearly sometimes, even as disciples, uh, and we don't even know it. We we think we see clearly, but we need to keep coming back to Jesus again and again, and be touched by his life, be touched by his teaching, uh, mm-hmm. be touched by who he is, see him more clearly mm-hmm. than we see around us more clearly. Uh, I think we need to grow dissatisfied with the way that we see the world, the way that we think and process ideas, uh, and more content to learn to see what Jesus wants to show us. Yeah, good points. So, uh, so Jesus heals this blind man. He's able to clearly see now. He gives him that kind of weird instruction that you see periodically throughout the Gospels. Don't go and tell anyone. Don't go and talk to anyone. And we've talked about that uh, in, in our show before. And then you get this other interaction between Jesus and his disciples, which I think is really kind of the culmination of this chapter. This is where Jesus is really trying to get to um, the, these two important questions that he asks his disciples. And this is one of my favorite stories in all of the Gospels. Um, I really like studying this with people because this is just such a practical exercise to do. Uh, so in verse 27, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said to him, you are the Christ, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Um, I really like this story because I I like analyzing both of the questions and both of the answers. Um, The questions, both of them are good questions, uh, and they're important questions. Uh, his first question is, what do people think about me? Um, who do people say that, that Jesus is? Um, and what's the response that he gets? Well, one's, a, one's connected to prophecy. Uh, there is this looking for an Elijah to come, so they connect into that. And one is a connection to another teacher that had been walking around in those days, John the Baptist. Yeah, yeah. All of them good answers. Um, you know, I'd like to be, you know, Elijah or or John the Baptist or prophet of God or all those kind of things. They're, they're good things. And there are elements of truth in, in almost all of them, not exactly with Elijah, but uh, and, and not with John the Baptist, but at least a representative of God uh, in that sense. So there's kind of these partial pictures of Jesus. And what's really interesting about that to me is no one has the right answer about who Jesus is. The, uh, when the majority of people are asked, 
no one is, is right. Um, and I think that's an important thing to realize that just because a majority of people say this about Jesus or that about Jesus doesn't make it so. Uh, it doesn't make it true. There's a reality and a truth to who Jesus is, and the crowd doesn't deem that. Um, it's, it's who he actually is. And that leads to the second question, which is much more important. Um, it, it's, it's maybe important to think, who do people think Jesus is? But ultimately, in each person's life and in our listeners' lives and my personal life and, and the other panelists' lives, the most important question that you could answer is, who is Jesus to you? Um, who do you say that Jesus is? Um, and Peter, for all of his faults and failures and time sticking his foot in his mouth, gets one right here. Um, what, what does he say? You are the Christ. Yeah. Um, it's like, I don't know, everything that's kind of led up into this chapter finally clicks with Peter. <laughs> um, maybe uh, he still doesn't have all the answers, um, but he knows you are, you're the king. Um, you're the anointed one. You are the Lord. Um, I don't know. I really, really like that story. And I think that's just a helpful exercise to do for ourselves. It, it's, it's maybe good to look around and see what different people are saying about Jesus. But ultimately, when the rubber meets the road, we have to decide what the reality and truth about Jesus is and who he's going to be in our life um, and, and who he is to us. Um, and I think following Peter's example here, realizing that he's Christ, that he's Lord, is obviously the right conclusion to come to. Um, Scott, go ahead. And this is not a novel idea to Peter. Uh, Andrew, when he introduced uh, Peter to Jesus, it said, we found, I think he said, I know Philip said that to Nathaniel. Did Thomas, did uh, Thomas, I mean, did Andrew also say that to Peter? I'm thinking he said we found the Christ. I don't, I don't think, I don't know if it says, I, don't, I can't remember. I'm, I'm going to be wrong. Y'all go ahead and I'll go check it. Yeah, Justin, did you have a comment? Uh, just, just checking on John 1, it looks like. Yeah, we have found a Messiah. He's saying that John 141, the first one is Um, So I think you're right. It's not an original idea. Um, but I think I think this this two uh, part question Jesus is asking uh, is more than just discussing the facts. It is is driving toward a commitment. Uh, people will like to talk about uh, who who other people think Jesus is. And we like to discuss religious ideas, academic ideas, and we can kind of talk about them in a way that distances ourselves from the truth. It's just like, well, these opinions, these opinions, these opinions, and we leave the conversation saying, those are all opinions. And if you don't have to land on one idea yourself, then it doesn't change you. It doesn't develop into any difference in your life. Uh, but then to turn the question to, what do you think? Well, who do you say? Uh, and then to live in a different way because of that truth, that, that's a commitment. Uh, if you think that Jesus is not the Christ, what he is clearly claiming that he is, then you can't just go on saying that Jesus is a pretty good guy. He's a good teacher. No, he's a liar. Uh, if, if you say that uh, Jesus was just misunderstood by people, well, then you can't commit to the people who taught that he was the Christ. You can't commit to the apostles. They, they thought that he was Jesus, that he was the Christ. Um, so it, it, it does draw out of us a kind of commitment, and it's a helpful exercise when we're studying with people. Um, we can talk about these ideas all day long, 
But when it gets right down to it, you've got to make a decision about the evidence. You've got to decide what are you going to do with who Jesus is, which I think probably goes into the next section about um, the confession from Peter and, and does it actually make a difference in his life? But, yeah, good point. Yeah. Anything else you guys want to say about um, the story up through verse 29 or up through verse 30? Well, I will say that however you answer the question, and I, I hadn't thought about using it as a personal exercise, who do I say that Jesus is? That's a good thought. However we answer the question, one of the the main lesson in the chapter so far has been uh, whatever our answer is or however well, uh, however clearly I think I can see, Jesus is reminding his people that uh, you need to revisit these things. Uh, you need to clean off uh, the lenses of your glasses. Uh, you, you need a better prescription to see better. So whatever answer I come up with today on what who and what I think Jesus is, even if I'm completely right, it needs to be revisited uh, with the idea that I'm going to get it better or dialed in more accurately uh, or uh, with an understanding that uh, the more I know who Jesus is, uh, the, the, as you were talking about the commitment, my commitment may change or it may grow. Um, that, that's, that's an important idea that, that I think this, this chapter is really emphasizing is that this is not stagnant. This, there's not one answer uh, that is ever necessarily complete. Uh, it's, it's, it, there's, there's some mystery to, to the answer. We can get an answer, but every 10 years, the answer better be more developed in your own mind, even if you don't have more new vocabulary in your answer. What's that game kids play? You have little plastic faces, and by process of elimination, oh, guess who? Guess who? Yeah, yeah. The the gospels have a, a good bit of guess who going on. I mean, John the Baptist shows up on the scene, and people remember it had been noised throughout Judea what happened at his birth, and they were wondering what kind of person is this going to be. And then there are the questions: Him, who who are you? You know, are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Sometimes is a question about Jesus or John, because remember Deuteronomy 18, the Lord will raise up a prophet like uh, me. Uh, and then with Jesus, uh, Dan, in Mark 5 that you wrote over last night, you know, it, back in Nazareth, it's like, what's, where did this guy get this? We know this is, you know, uh, um, Mary's son. He's the carpenter. He's, um, and then throughout the Gospel of John, you know, some people are saying he's got a demon. Some people are saying, um, and and here, some, you know, Elijah, some John the Baptist, Herod. Oh, it's John the Baptist. Mm -hmm. uh, others, one of the prophets. Um, and then, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly. So there, there's a lot of, you know, looking for who's who. And then it's complicated by the fact that their perceptions aren't tied to reality. When they're hearing he's the Messiah, they're thinking, and even sometimes we see the apostles thinking, oh, when you come in the kingdom, you know, can, can we, you know, sit at the right and at the left? And you've got Peter here 
going to be saying, no, you're never going to go die. You know, right after he said, you're the Christ and hey, Peter, you're the rock. Mm -hmm. Straight to, hey, Peter, you're the stumbling block. Um, and so there's just a lot of confusion uh, about who he is and what that means about it. Yeah, and so that leads into that, that next story, uh, which got referenced in verse 31. Um, after this, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Um, and so this is really kind of a big turning point. Jesus starts very clearly telling them exactly what he's going to do, exactly what his mission is, exactly what's going to happen to him, and it's not what is expected. Um, and I think that's another kind of small lesson in itself. Um, just because you expect Jesus to be like something or God to be like something doesn't mean that they will be that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and what they are is good. Um, and it turns out to be a real big blessing that all of these things happen to Jesus. Like when Peter was very against that idea, no, you, you're not going to die. That's not going to happen. Um, thank God that it did. Um, because where would we be if, if it didn't? Um, but wow. Yeah. Right on the heels of Peter saying, you're the Christ. He kind of rebukes Jesus. Um, that kind of hits on a little thing that Justin was talking about where, you know, whenever you decide what Jesus is going to be in your life, it needs to affect and change um, how you view Jesus and how you interact with him. And it looks like maybe Peter's not quite there yet. Um, yeah, Jesus is, is Christ, but he's still rebukable. <laughs> um, yeah. And the idea of, this is a, not a great analogy, but uh, we'll, we'll go with it. Uh, if the Declaration of Independence had been prophetic and inspired and said, and someday there's going to be this fantastic president who's going to do all these wonderful, wonderful things. And we're going to, and, and everybody's waiting. And then here's the guy, oh, it's him, it's him. And then he says, yeah, I'm going to be, you know, impeached and, you know, sent to prison and killed. That's, that's not what we've been waiting on. You know, we've been, for a long time, we've been waiting on Messiah. Mm -hmm. We weren't looking for really a convicted felon, you know, being executed, you know, for for crimes he's accused of. That 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 wasn't our picture of the Messiah. Although I will say this, there were some Jews who were expecting more than one Messiah. There were some Jews who were expecting one kingly Messiah and one suffering Messiah. But they, it, it, they got more than some people got, but they didn't realize it's one and the same. Now, what do you guys think about uh, Jesus's response to Peter's rebuke? Satan means adversary. And Peter went from, all right, Peter got one right, to there goes Peter again. Yeah, and what, what makes him the adversary? There's He's no one to do. what Jesus is planning to do. 
Yeah, and his says, will was set on his plans, you know, his ideas of what the Christ should be, rather than on God's plans. And, and like you said, uh, God and Jesus are going to appear differently than what we thought, but it's always good. In fact, it's, it's better than what we have in mind. Yeah. yeah, and you guys have anything else you want to say about uh, that through verse thirty-three? Well, just that that the, this is the this is the middle of the book. Every, everything has been building up to this uh, this this glorious Messiah who can do anything he wants. He can heal anybody. He can um, affect any change in his environment. He can uh, raise people from the dead. He can heal anybody. He has power over spirits and demons. He can attract thousands to him, and he can feed them all, and he can be somebody that people want to make king. And then he says, like like what you were talking about, Scott. By the way, I'm going to get killed, and uh, I will come back. But you know, th this kingship that you have in mind, that you have envisioned, this Messiah idea that you are thinking about, I'm going to get murdered by the guys that uh, clearly are weaker than him if he can do any of these things. And so, the second half of the book has that driving it the whole time. And and um, if if the book has been rising up to this great, powerful one uh, by he, by this point here in chapter eight. Jesus doesn't lose power, but maybe his image uh, or, or the image that, that that people see in him, it looks like maybe he's going downhill, but it's actually getting closer and closer to the highest pinnacle. And so, um, whereas it feels like in some senses, this might be the peak in the gospel, it's actually continuing to rise up to a higher peak, even if it's a more complicated one to comprehend. And I'd like to mention a word here about Peter. Um, Peter is mentioned in the gospels by far more than any of the other 12. And he's always listed first. And even sometimes in some of the lists, it will say first Peter and then all these other guys. Um, and we can relate to Peter. I think most all of us, you know, if we look at the apostles, you know, we can kind of relate to Peter because all of us have done some dumb stuff and said some dumb stuff. And we find some satisfaction, I think, in, you know, Peter's trying, but he keeps failing uh, and then getting back up. And we can relate to that. And I think that's helpful. But I also think it's a mistake if we look at young Peter and don't notice the difference between young Peter and older Peter. Mm -hmm. So Peter will sometimes just, you know, like on the Mount of Transfiguration, you know, it's not that he's saying it's something sinful, uh, but he just, you know, like Mark says, he said that because he didn't know what to say. Uh, and then sometimes, you know, it's really blowing it. Um, sometimes, like one of my favorites is in John 6, where he said, everybody's leaving. Jesus says, you guys going to go? And I love what Peter says. Peter says, where else got, go? <laughs> the words black, where would we go? Yeah. Peter doesn't say, oh, no, I understood that thoroughly. No, he didn't. But he knew where to stick. But here's the thing. Peter's low point, he and Judas both betray Christ in their own way. But mm -hmm. Peter gets back up. And the people that he was afraid of, he wasn't afraid of the little maidservant girl. 
he's afraid of the men on the Sanhedrin in there that are, you know, that he could be turned over to. And yet that's the same people he will later stand in front of and absolutely confess Christ before them and risk imprisonment, beating, and even if someone wanted death. Uh, and then older Peter is going to say, be sober, be watchful. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, the devil's going about is a roaring lion. So I'm, I think Peter can be a really, really encouraging person for us. When we've blown it, when we've done something stupid, you know, we can take uh, some comfort in seeing just like so persecuted they, the prophets before us, you know, well, so stupid said Peter before us, you know, and, and we can get back up and we can be forgiven. But then if we rest in a pattern of, so I'm just going to keep being a doofus and messing up, we're missing the fact that Peter continued to grow. He would still sometimes make mistakes, but he would grow and grow and got stronger and became something he wasn't when he was younger. And that was sober and watchful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a point. Go ahead, Justin. I hate to make this point. It's a very different point. And that was, we should just like capitalize on that for a second. Um, so many examples. I, I tend to think of myself more of a, a Thomas than a Peter. That's a whole other discussion when we're not studying the gospel of John right now. Um, Thomas gets a bad rap sometimes, but remember, he's the one who said, Come, let us go that we may die with him. But on closer examination, that's probably a negative thing too. Um, there's something that, that Mark records here in Mark 8 32 that I've underlined in my Bible. Um, he says, and this he said plainly. Um, that's really helpful. There's some things that Jesus says that are not plain. He's been teaching in parables. He's been uh, saying all sorts of things that, that take a second or a third or fourth look. Uh, but it's always nice when the Bible just comes out and says, this is what I mean. Of all the teachings of Jesus, this is the one that he seems to really want his disciples to get. In fact, he's going to turn, and in verse 34, call all the crowd to him. You think he would rebuke Peter kind of quietly. Um, in verse 32, Peter is trying to rebuke Jesus quietly. He takes Jesus aside and starts to rebuke him. But then Jesus, in verse 33, turns and sees all the disciples and rebukes Peter kind of openly. And then begins to springboard off that into a greater lesson for everybody. Jesus wants us to understand that his rule as Messiah uh, is not some worldly power it is what looks like a very meek and humble position. But if we're going to follow Jesus uh, and be part of his kingdom, but it means going where he went, doing what he did, uh, and, and keeping in step with this very meager Messiah. And that runs counter, not just to the world, but I think to our own aspirations of greatness. We, we want to be appreciated and respected. Um, we want to be acknowledged. And, and Jesus says it means giving up on yourself. And so he's going to turn to the crowd in 34 and following and, and kind of address uh, our our own struggles with greatness. He's going to show us what it really looks like. It, it, that that requires plain teaching. <laughs> you mentioned Thomas. Uh, it occurs to me we've done this some in the past. I think we'll do this some more in the future and do some character studies uh, through the Gospels. You can do it through the Old Testament as well and the Epistles. Uh, but maybe sometime we'll do time. Thomas strikes me as the more sarcastic of the, of the 12. Uh, maybe he and Nathaniel. Uh, 
but uh, who may be Bartholomew. But um, I, I think it would be really cool maybe if we uh, start sometime doing an on again, off again series of character studies. And when we do that, maybe you could do Thomas for us. Yeah, so so uh, Justin's point leads right into what Jesus goes with next. I can, I can read this section through the end of the chapter, verse 34. He called the crowd to, uh, to him with his disciples, and he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Um, so, uh, you know, I think Jesus is still speaking pretty plainly um, in his teaching here, but to a, a larger group of people now, broader application. Uh, and he has some really convicting and striking things to say. I don't know, what, what do you guys think about? all this stuff. I think this is one of the most important texts in the New Testament. And I think it's a pretty good definition of repentance. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And let's maybe begin with what does it mean to take up our cross. Lots of times people talk about, oh, that's the cross I have to bear. And I think they get it from this statement of Jesus. And that's not what he means. What does he mean when he says we have to take up our cross, bear our cross? It's uh, dying. It's walking to your, your execution. Yeah, yeah. So who, who dies on my cross? I do. Specifically, what part of me? The old man, Romans 6, put to death the old man. Mm -hmm. yeah. The way we use that phrase today, when we use it incorrectly, we're speaking about a, things that are real, right? Uh, uh, my cross to bear is usually in reference to some challenge we have in life. Um, I, I was in a car crash and now I can't use one of my legs very well, but I'm making the best of, that I can. I'm getting through life. That's just my cross to bear. But what Jesus is meaning here is we are taking um, our commitment and submission to Jesus uh, along with us, uh, daily dying. Um, not ev carrying the cross until we eventually die, but we are daily dying. Uh, uh, we are daily being resurrected in Christ, uh, and, and the cross is the symbol of that. It's the choice to die every day to self and, and to be raised every day, and, and it's going to be uncomfortable or it's going to be scary or it's going to be humiliating day in and day out and that's that's what a cross is is the the discomfort and the shame that is connected to the daily uh to that daily death 
depending upon a daily resurrection. The phrase deny self. I mean, selfishness is usually the problem behind sin. You know, look at the Ten Commandments. Why do people steal? Because they're being selfish. Why do people commit adultery? They're being selfish. Selfish. So when we look at the two greatest commandments, Deuteronomy 6, what's the greatest commandment of all? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yeah, that's a submission. He's above us, vertical relationship. Leviticus, what's the second greatest commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor. Yeah. And yet, what's our tendency as humans? Um, what's the, what's, why, what does the devil say to Eve to get her to disobey God? Be like God. Yeah, so you can exalt yourself. And what was the thing he said right before that? Uh, he says what God said wasn't really true. You'll not yeah. surely die. So you don't need to respect God. Hmm. So you don't need to fear God and you can exalt yourself. And you know what? All four of us and everybody listening to the podcast, anybody listening live right now, we've all done that, haven't we? There have been times when we were not respecting God and we were exalting our own will. Now, instead of saying like Jesus, not my will, but yours be done, what have we said to God? Not your will, but mine be done. Mm -hmm. When we do that, we've got self way up in a place where self shouldn't be. And when David does that in his sin with Bathsheba, he views himself so much higher than Uriah that he can just have this guy killed and a number of other people get killed. And when he's told about it, his attitude is, ah, don't worry about it. And then he has to be brought back down and, and, and by the, the parable that Nathan gives him. And then we see his, you know, feeling low in, in, in Psalm 51. So we have to deny self. And by denying self, Luke 9, 23 is the parallel passage to this verse. We're putting ourselves back where God wants us to be in the universe. And you guys are all dads. Um, and you all have some somewhat younger children and some older. But just think about this. Uh, mirror this with what you want for your children. All three of you guys want good things for your children. Mm -hmm. Do you want your children to be dishonoring and disrespectful and not listen to you as father? Of course not. That's not good for your children. You want what's good for your children. Do you want your children to get ahead in life by lying to and manipulating their siblings? No. No. You, you love their siblings too. And when your children learn to view themselves in this right spot, that's what's good for them. You know, in Deuteronomy, it says God's laws are good for us. But in selfishness, we end up hurting other people, rebelling against God, and th there will be people that we hurt, and that's temporary, and they can learn to stay away from us. 
but who's still stuck with me as long as I'm in rebellion to God? Yeah. Yeah, so like in Proverbs 1, I'm really lying in wait for my own blood. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if Jesus says, if you want to come to me, first thing you've got to do, deny self. And irony is seen in all of the paradox statements. If you lose your life, you will actually gain it. Mm -hmm. He that humbles himself will be exalted. The last will be first. But the opposite is he that seeks, holds on to his life, loses it. He that is first will be last, and he that exalts himself will be humbled. Just, Just the thought about those two statements, verse 36 and uh, 37. Uh, I usually jump immediately to eternal life, that, that if I lose myself, I'll gain eternal life. That's not what he says. He says gaining the whole world. And I think we have kind of this conquering mentality that I need to achieve, I need to inspire, I need to have ambition, I need to get out there and, and get mine. Um, and, and Jesus is he's actually reflecting some of the, the wisdom of the Proverbs, I think, where, where there's the one about uh, he has uh, more strength who, who controls his own spirit than he who takes a city. Now, if you want to be great, how about conquer yourself? Uh, if, if you are able to put your own passions and desires to death, and it's like you've taken on the whole world, you know, the Beatitudes, uh, blessed are the meek, and they shall inherit the earth. So the conquerors, uh, the fellow heirs in the kingdom who are going to stand with the Christ are the ones who have done what he did, who, who put their own will to death and said, not my will, but your will, God, be done. Um, and then, of course, the, the promise with that is eternal life. But he, he does stop on this phrase, the whole world. Um, there's sort of this existential threat that I think a lot of us face. And if you're saying this passage with someone who's not familiar with the Bible, maybe they don't even believe in God. They do believe in this kind of imposing doom that we're all going to face. We're all going to die one day. And so what if you get everything you ever wanted and still meet your deathbed? You know, 10 out of 10 people die. So what are you going to do? Uh, you, you've still got self to defeat. And, and so Jesus brings this to a greater achievement, uh, something we were meant to do, which was to live for God, not for ourselves. I think that's something that maybe more people can relate to than I give them credit for. Like, I think a lot of people are thoughtful about their death. They just don't want to stay thoughtful about it for very long. Jesus brings it to that moment where we have to stop and think about what is my life? What is it headed toward? And if I really believe Jesus is the Christ, he's got it figured out and I'll follow him to a, a greater life. And one, one statement that um, I, I've only heard it spoken aloud once, but I think it's an idea that a lot of people share in trying to answer like, uh, the question, okay, what, how, how can we get better? Or how can we have the, the, the right things? Um, and the, the lady said, if we would truly love ourselves, then we would do what's best for ourselves. And that's a really interesting or even mathematically valuable idea, but human beings are not that way. And when I love myself, I don't do what's best for me. I do what me wants me. And best for me um, is judged by me. And so when I judge 
when I love myself and I judge what is best for me, uh, it may be something that's going to destroy my body or destroy my reputation or destroy my relationships with others. Uh, but if what is best for me is measured by something outside of me, then loving myself is not going to be the way to figure out what is outside of me. Mm-hmm. And so there's the trap of the very simple uh, trap of, of, of humanism. And this is the old humanism from back in the 17th century, not necessarily the way people think about it today. But the more we can understand about this world and the more that we can understand about, about human bodies and human interactions and the laws of human nature, the better we can create an environment where humans will be good. Uh, and this is spoken by people who, who had a respect for God. But it isn't uh, that sort of effort that is going to create the utopia, uh, but rather seeking that divine law that is beyond us, and sometimes laws that may be beyond our comprehension uh, that we can't uh, narrate out. But Jonathan, seeking those laws of the Bible, we can get that. Jonathan, and then I'll have someone here. Go ahead, John. Oh, I was going to go to the last verse if you want to comment on what Dan said. Yeah, so... Dan's touched on making a really important point here, but you know what? I see we're out of time, so I'm going to go back to uh, Jonathan. Go ahead. Yeah, I just want to hit on the on the last verse also because it's a really important idea um, that that Jesus brings up in the last thing that he says in this chapter, um, which is really kind of scary. But that this whole business of denying yourself, taking up your cross, really changing, really committing to God's will rather than my will. It's challenging just in the struggle within ourselves, but there are also external things that make it difficult. Um, and Jesus talks about that in the Gospels as well. The, the world hated him. It will hate his disciples as well. There'll be difficulty. There'll be reasons to be ashamed of living that lifestyle, uh, living in the way of exalting God and exalting Jesus. And Jesus is very plain of um, how we need to approach that um, in verse 38. Uh, He says, if you are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, I will be ashamed of you when I come in the glory of the Father with his holy angels. Um, He just lays it all out there. If you're ashamed of Jesus, Jesus will be ashamed of you. Um, And some of the other gospels, he says, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father, uh, which is the same kind of point. Um, There's a lot riding on us sticking with Jesus and trusting in him and giving our will to him. Um, And it's really kind of a scary statement. You know, Um, we bend to cowardice and shame, uh, I think, very easily. Uh, At least I do sometimes. And I need to not be so cowardly and ashamed of Jesus if he's really the Christ, if he's really the reigning king. Um, And if I am, there will be consequences. so uh, that's through chapter eight. Do you guys have anything else you want to say before we wrap up this afternoon? All right, cool. Good discussion. Thank you to our audience for joining us today. Uh, if you have any questions or thoughts about what we discussed in the end of this chapter or anything else you'd like us to discuss on our uh, program, you can submit those to us at BibleQuest.tv, and we'll be happy to do those in the future. But that's all we have for this week. And so we'll look forward to seeing everyone next week, Lord willing.